I just don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> podcast true crimes and story times i'm michelle and i'm kirsten and today's my true crime episode let's get it that means it's friday friday Ooh, friday i'm probably really happy that it's friday mm. but the day that we're recording is sunday so yeah gotta go back to work tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> all right so today i'm doing a legend and then the case that the legend's based off of gotcha so, we're just going to jump right in head first. Let's just go. Hold on, let me plug, unplug my laptop. Okay. Okay. So, the legend is called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. Mm. It's also known as The Babysitter or The Sitter. It's an urban legend that dates back to the 1960s about a teenage girl babysitting children who receives telephone calls from a stalker who continually asks her to check the children. What the heck? The basic storyline has been adapted a number of times in different movies. And it's also the 1950 murder of a teenage babysitter, Janet Christman, is commonly cited as a source of the legend. And that's the murder we're going to talk about today. Gotcha. So the legend details a girl who's watching television at night while babysitting after the children have been put to bed upstairs. The phone rings... And the unknown caller, caller, call her, <laughs> caller call tells her check the children. The girl dismisses the call, but the anonymous caller dials back several times, and the girl becomes increasingly, increasingly, incre- <laughs> increasingly, increasingly frightened. Why didn't she just go check? Don't know. So eventually, the babysitter calls the police, who inform her they will trace the next call. After the stranger calls again, the police return her call, advising her to leave immediately. She evacuates the home, and the police meet her to explain that the calls were coming from inside the house and that the unidentified prowler was calling after killing the children upstairs. What the? (laughs) Oglagla? That's messed up. That is messed up. That's scary. Yeah. And this is real. Well. Well, this is the legend. Yeah, this is the legend. So this isn't the real thing. Okay, this is the legend. Yeah. Gotcha. So other versions of the legend. Some variants of the story have one or more of these details. In more modern versions, rather than being tormented by menacing phone calls, the babysitter is unnerved by what she assumes to be a hideous life-size statue of a clown in the corner of the room. Yeah, I would be terrified too. When the mother or father of the children she is caring for calls home to check in the babysitter asks if she can cover the clown statue with a blanket and the parent informs the babysitter they do not own a clown statue the statue was really a murderer who attacks and kills the girl before she can escape what the heck so that's another version of the story right another version is the caller turns out to be either one of the children or an elder sibling who decided to scare the babysitter as a prank and they get told off by the police. So nothing really happens. Yeah. Well, it says the babysitter is also killed. 
Oh. Um, another one is the babysitter manages to rescue the children and the prowler gets arrested by police. However, in most versions, the children do not survive. Yikes. Another one is while being taken away by the police, the prowler... Oh, this is the same one. My bad. Okay. While being taken away by police, the prowler whispers or says out loud, See you soon to the babysitter. Oh, that's creepy. In some versions, when the prowler calls the babysitter, he just makes scary noises like giggling or heavy breathing. Could you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody calls you like, <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> that sounded so creepy. <laughs> so, also in this version, when the operator says that the calls have been coming from the same house, the phone goes quiet. And when the operator asks if the babysitter is still there, all they get is the same scary noises, meaning that the babysitter has already been killed. Yikes. Um... Another one is the children are with the babysitter while watching television. The prowler starts phoning them, saying that he'll be with them in a decreasing amount of time. Then after they get the news that the calls are coming from inside the house, they hear a door upstairs opening and the sound of footsteps heading towards the room where they are. This version can be found in the scary stories to tell in the dark books. Do you remember reading those? Did you ever read those as a kid? Mm-mm. I did. Nope, I don't think I ever read those. I've heard of, I've heard of them. Yeah, but I've, read, I've them. read them. I've read some of them, yeah. Maybe I'll use that for future reference for you my should. podcast. They're pretty good books. Okay. Years later, the babysitter is now an adult and has a family of her own. One evening, she and her husband go to have dinner out while a babysitter looks after their children. The evening is going well until a waiter approaches their table and says that there is a phone call for her. She then answers the phone and hears, Did you check the children? This is an ending that appears in some of the movie versions. The police inform one of the children that they found the prowler under the kid's bed holding a weapon. Yikes. Creepy, right? Very creepy. Okay, so now we're going to get into the case. So this is the real case. This is the real deal now. The real deal. True crime. Yep. Janet Christman was born on March 21st, 1936. A long ass time ago. Mm Mm-hmm. She was the oldest daughter of Charles and Lula Christman, with a younger sister by 18 months, Retta Christman Smith, and a newborn baby, Cheryl Christman Bodoroff. I don't know how to say that, so I tried my best. Sounds about right. They had been living in Boonville, Missouri, before they relocated to Columbia, Missouri. They were living on the upper floor of the business they owned, Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse. And at this time, Janet was 13 years old. She went to Jefferson Junior High School, and she was in 8th grade. She was said to be a loving teenager who had a knack for playing the piano and singing in the choir, especially for church. Nice. Janet was super intelligent and independent for her age, and on Saturday of March 18, 1950, there was a dance. Janet had been invited to go by several of her friends, but declined because she was going to babysit. She babysat for two families that were well acquainted with one another, the Romax and the Mueller's. She was going to babysit Ed and Ann Romax's three-year-old son, Gregory. And the reason that she skipped this dance and babysat instead was she really wanted to get enough money for a burgundy-colored suit she wanted to wear for Easter. Nice. She wanted to be a bad bee on Easter. She was independent, making her own money Mm -hmm. for her own suit. Yep. Nice. She wanted to walk in for that Easter dinner and be like, hmm. Mm. Bam, mm. bitch. Bam. <laughs> Bam. This is why we need video. I know. <laughs> so, in 
So at 7.30 p.m., Janet arrived at the Romax place. The couple lived on the outskirts of Columbia. And at the time, Anne was pregnant. They hadn't had any type of date night in a while. It had been a long time. I mean, with a three-year-old. Yeah. And she's pregnant. Yep. So when Janet got there, Anne told her Gregory liked sleeping with the radio on. Just, so just leave it on. And also believing... Oh, believing? <laughs> also, before leaving... I just combined those two words. Believing. Ed taught Janet how to load, unload, and fire the shotgun in case anything happened. Dang. So this dude's like, here you go. Here's a gun. A to a 13-year-old. Shotgun. To a 13-year-old. Watching their three-year-old child. Yep. And he left the gun near the front door. Okay. Well, so the three-year-old can just go boop and touch it if they wanted to. Right. Oh, Let's hope God. she pays Thank attention. God. Thank God. This was also like... That it is 2022 now, yeah. dude. <laughs> I would never. That would never, 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 ever. Nope. He said they would be back soon and told her to lock the door and turn the front porch light on if anyone were to knock. Throughout the evening, the weather got worse. And the temperature dropped to the mid-20s with rain and sleet. Dang. I wish it would do that right now. Man. I want it to snow, dude. Man. Guys, if you're in Indiana. We haven't had any snow. At least... That's northern Indiana. We haven't had any freaking snow. And it's really frustrating. For real. I want snow. If it's going to be cold, it better freaking snow. It's like halfway through January and we haven't had any snow. Maybe an inch of snow. Annoying. Total. Annoying. And like me and Logan were talking about it the other day. Mm-hmm. And everywhere around us is getting I snow know. except for us. I know. Places in it's southern so... Indiana are getting snow that like normally don't get a whole lot of snow. And here we are. It's annoying. In, like, the middle of Indiana. Seriously. Not getting any snow. So, around 10.35 p.m., Boone County Sheriff's Department received a frantic phone call. Officer Ray McCowan picked up the phone, and there was a woman on the other end saying, Come quick. He inter- Oh, he tried intervening, but the phone line was cut short, and a dial tone was all that could be heard. Yikes. The call was too short to provide a trace, and the woman didn't mention any additional information. <laughs> Anne Romack called the home from the Moon Valley Villa to check on Janet and see how the night with Gregory was going, but nobody answered the phone. Mm. Considering it was quite late, Anne wasn't too concerned, presuming Janet had fallen asleep. So she's like, oh, she probably just fell asleep on the couch or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it's late, whatever, right. you know. The Romacks headed home at approximately 1.15 a.m. It was 1.35 a.m. when they pulled up. Whipped it in. Whipped it. Whipping it. At almost 2 o'clock in the morning? Yep. Dang. They were partying, huh? Hell yeah. They were playing cards with their friends. Man. Sounds like a fun time. It does. <laughs> they noticed the porch light was on and the front window blinds were open wide. The door was unlocked and he was confused since he had told Janet to lock the door. Mm-hmm. He said if anybody approaches the door... To lock turn it. the porch light on and lock the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Anne and Ed walk into a tragedy. Yikes. Three days shy of her 14th birthday, Janet Christman was found sprawled out on the living room floor. Trigger warning, just so you know, skip 15 seconds ahead. If you don't want to hear about what happened to her. Yeah, it's messed up. So, she was laying in a pool of her own blood, and she had been violently raped and murdered. Yikes. Her legs were spread out with her right slipper barely hanging off her foot. 
There was a head wound from a blunt instrument and multiple puncture wounds from a mechanical pencil. They had mechanical pencils back then? I guess. Man. There was also a cord from an electric iron that had been snipped with a pair of scissors, and it was bound tightly around her neck. Yikes. And a few feet away was a landline phone dangling off the hook. Anne darted up the stairs to check on her three-year-old son, Greg, who had been unharmed and shockingly still asleep, oblivious to the ongoings of downstairs. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, Ed Romack called 911. As he should. Sheriff Glenn Powell from Boone County Sheriff's Department arrived with detectives and bloodhounds. Unfortunate complications soon arose, however, when Lieutenant Joe Douglas from the city police, a different jurisdiction that hadn't had any authority since the Romax lived 100 yards out of city limits, arrived at the scene and attempted to take control of the investigation. 100 yards? That's yep. like hardly any. That's like a football field yep. length outside of the city. Yeah, but the police officer was like, nah, I'm taking control of yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Which is stupid. Mm-hmm. I hate when the police either don't want to work with other police departments mm-hmm. or want to do this type of shit like be so much better if they just work together yeah stop being prideful bro mm-hmm. um so the battle of who was to lead the case definitely put a damper on things and inside of the home were obvious signs of struggle and janet had fought her attacker so she was trying to find him off good blood smears and fingerprints were found in the living room and the kitchen the back door had been unlocked and left ajar. As, pol- as the police followed the trail outside, the search dogs managed to track the perp's scent one mile up from Stewart Road to West Boulevard and across West Ash Street before losing the trail. <laughs> Which, I don't know where Daddy is, but... Maybe the people who live there know. Yeah, maybe. Back at the crime scene, an adult male's footprints were found near a side window of the residence that had been shattered with a garden hoe, where several authorities believe the person had gained entry, primarily due to the muddy papers found on the piano that was situated nearby. A garden hoe? A garden hoe. You're a garden hoe. I want to have a garden hoe. (laughs) (laughs) It's too cold for a garden. Right now. Yeah. The way they got in is what the two jurisdictions disagreed on. What? What? The way they got in is what? That doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. Oh, yes, They disagreed does. on the way that they yes, got in. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. I don't it know why sense. it did not click in my head. It's okay. I know what you meant. Due to Ed's instructions he gave Janet, many detectives suspected that the perpetrator knew Janet and tried appearing friendly to get inside. Could be possible because the front door was unlocked. Yep. And the light was on. Mm-hmm. And the windows, or the blinds were open. Yep. That's a good point. This theory was substantiated by the front porch light being turned on, as he told Janet to do if someone came to the door. That's what I just said. The loaded shotgun nearby untouched as well. So she didn't feel threatened. Yep. And they knew where to locate the electric iron to use the cord for a murder weapon. How'd they know where the iron was? Or did they just use whatever was closest? I don't know if it was like in a closet or something. How would they know that it was in there? Why would they specifically use the cord from the electric iron? Because they wanted to choke her. Okay, but maybe there's like lamps or something plugged in. Mm, that's what I'm saying. Like, why would they specifically go for the right iron? For the iron. So they must have known. Yeah, you're right. Okay. 
With this prevailing theory, law enforcement worked 12-hour shifts performing stakeouts and canvassing surrounding areas. They were thinking the killer may return to the scene to relish in what he had accomplished. Which is possible, but I think if he's trying not to get caught... He ain't coming back. And, yeah. There's not, like... It's not like one of those things where somebody's missing and the murderer or kidnapper is with the people looking for the body. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. Like, trying to look involved. I don't... Mm-hmm. I don't know. The police sought out assistance from the public asking for locals to call in if they see anything peculiar or anyone they know acting differently than normal. While this was happening, local officers had gone around questioning Janet's friends, family, and students from her school. During this process, along with local residents phoning in possible leads, potential suspects being sought out. What? Potential suspects were being sought out? Yeah. That's what I meant, guys. My bad. <laughs> Evidently, I didn't check my stuff. Yeah, you were always talking about me not checking my stuff. Bruh, I've had a rough week. It's okay. Don't judge me. We'll let us we'll let us slip this time. This week. This week. That's yeah. it. It became evident that a Rach Rachel <laughs> my, oh my goodness. God. A Rachel bias. A Rachel bias. Sorry to anybody whose name is Rachel. Austin's mom's name is Rachel. <laughs> my brother's fiance's name is Rachel too. Sorry to all the Rachels out there. <laughs> it became evident that a racial bias was present. Why did I say racial? Racial. Racial. Oh my god. Okay, last time. It became evident that a racial bias was present because a majority of the men brought in for questioning were black men in the community who were unwarrantedly deemed suspicious. So they were like, oh, you're black. You look sus. You look sus. And just saying that is not my thought process. No, that's what they were thinking. This was also in 1936. Right. Way, way, way long ago. Actually, I think this was 1940s, wasn't it? Well, she, she was, was born, born in 1936. 1936 so she this was 13. Was, mm-hmm. So 1949. There you go, y'all. Quick math. Maybe 1950 because... It was three days shy of her 14th birthday. True. Bam. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, nevertheless, this tactic was pointless, obviously. And the police were no longer closer... Oh, were no closer to resolving Janet's murder. And the next line I wrote, I said, duh, because not only black men are guilty, obviously, stupid strategy. Right. But this was not the first rape and murder to happen in Columbia, Missouri. Four years earlier, on a bitterly cold night, February 5th, 1946, 20-year-old Mary Lou Jenkins had been brutally murdered in a similar fashion like Janet. So this was in 1950, because it says four years earlier in 1946. Okay, there you go. Mary Lou was at home alone. This was less than a mile away, two blocks over from the Romack residence where Janet was murdered. Her mother spent the evening a few houses away, tending to an elderly couple. And her father was out of town conducting business. When Mary Lou's mother had to spend the night away down the street, they conjured up a plan to alert one another if something were to happen. Their scheme was to turn on a light, lift up the shades, and place a phone call. Hmm. Late into the night, Mary Lou's mother noticed a light on in her house with the shades up. But since she never received a phone call, she didn't believe anything was wrong. First of all... That's a lot of steps. As a mother, I'd be like, Okay, two out of three. Two Even out of three. Even if, like, one out of three, I'd be like, sums up. That light's yeah. on? Oh, yeah. 
something's up. I need to go check on my kid. Right. I'd be like, hold on, BRB. Because I got to go check on this. Yeah. That's like too many just steps. Just mother's though. intuition, bro. Yeah. That's too many steps. That is too many steps. Like, but I'm just you saying. You need to do this, this, and this. This is 1946. And then I'll come so. check on you. This is 1946. Right. They just want to be sure, so they're not checking every five minutes, I would assume. Because, like, if she flips the light on, the shades aren't open, no phone call. <laughs> I can understand that. Like, the light on inside. Oh, yeah. Inside, yeah. But, like, well, it says the scheme was to turn on a light. So, it could be in the house or, mm-hmm. you know. So, if they just flick the light on to use it for something else, you That's don't want to run down there. That's true. But, two out of three. I'd be it like, should be all a right, specific what's light, up? Like, the outside light. Yeah, it should. Let me see. Okay. The following morning, when she returned home, she found her daughter deceased on the living room floor. And trigger warning again, because we're going to talk a little bit about Mary Lou's death. She had been raped and strangled with an extension cord. Hmm. So, two weeks later, Floyd Cochran, a 35-year-old disabled trash hauler, was arrested for savagely murdering his wife. Hmm. Afterward, he attempted to commit suicide, but was unsuccessful. Once the police were aware of what happened, they took him into custody. And Floyd admitted without any remorse that he murdered his wife. Considering the timeline of events and the desperate need to solve Mary Lou's murder, Boone County investigators interrogated Floyd for 10 hours. Dang. 10 hours. That's a long time. Where he supposedly made incriminating statements that led to his guilt, and he later confessed to a crime. Oh, to the crime, despite no evidence connecting him to the murder. This is a time where police officers would just be like, okay, you murdered somebody else, you probably did this too. Mm-hmm. And they would like beat them, do anything they could do to, like, basically get a mm-hmm. confession. There, I remember learning about um, something in school where there were 11 people that were convicted for, um, like, a rape and murder of somebody. I can't remember all the details exactly. But the only reason they were convicted was because they were interrogated for so long and harassed for so long that they got tired of it. They didn't do it, but they confessed to it. Because they were tired of being interrogated. And yeah, they that's went basically to, torture. They went to prison and, like, lived for, like, 35 years in prison and then finally found out that none of their DNA matches the DNA at the crime scene. Wow. And after 35, I don't, I don't know exactly how long they were in prison, but after, it was a long time. After they were in prison for this long time, they were finally let out, but their lives were, like, ruined. That's crazy. Yeah, it was messed up. So Floyd was subsequently sentenced to die on september 26 1947 via the gas chamber a few hours before being executed he recanted his alleged confession to murdering mary lou so he said he didn't do it yeah he no he full-heartedly confessed to murdering his wife but mary lou he's like no i did not do that it was later discovered he was coerced to give a false confession but the deed had already been done and mary lou's death is now considered solved stupid So that seems to be more common than we would think. A series of prowlers and peeping toms would emerge in the following years, and in the late months of 1949, the activity increased with a string of sexual assaults. So trigger warning, we're about to talk about sexual assault and rape. So if you don't want to hear that, I fast forward a little bit. The first rape occurred several days before Halloween. A 16-year-old teenager was babysitting on East Sunset Lane when an unidentified male wearing a white homemade mask with holes cut out for eyes broke into the residence and violated the young woman in the living room. 
So the following month, on November 29, 1949, 18-year-old Stevens College student Sally Johnson became the next target. She lived one block away from where the prior victim was attacked and was home alone falling asleep on the sofa while watching television when an unknown, unknown male gained entry and attempted to violate her. Thankfully, she resisted her attacker and was left unharmed as the perpetrator panicked and fled from the home. On the very next day, another more bold incident occurred. A college student enrolled at the University of Missouri was on a date with her boyfriend. They were at Hinkson, Hinkson, that's kind of hard to say. Hinkson, yeah. Hinkson. Hinkson Creek, a lover's lane, and in their vehicle, when a man draped in a white hood and brandishing a firearm appeared and ordered them out of the car. They did as he instructed, and he forced the couple several yards away. He proceeded to rob and bind the male, then ordered the female to walk. They were a considerable distance away. He, oh, when they were a considerable distance away, he sexually assaulted the female and sprinted away from the crime scene. Days later, on December 4, 1949, a 26-year-old black male named Jack Bradford had been arrested after the police caught him in the act of peeping inside a young woman's window. Creep. Right? Bradford spent a week in jail, and after intense questioning, he confessed to assaulting the 16-year-old in October and the attempted rape of 18-year-old Sally Johnson, even though she was brought in to ask if he was the perpetrator and was unable to provide an adequate answer. But he had a mask on. Right. So, it was kind of Well, did he have a mask on with Sally? I think so. Did he? It just says when an unknown male gained entry. That's it. It was the 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the couple. Right. So, Bradford spent a week in jail, and after intense questioning, he confessed to... Oh, I already said that. Yep, you did. The reports of peculiar... That's hard to say. Peculiar. Why am I having such hard trouble talking? Hard trouble talking? Oh Why am I gosh. having such... The reports of peculiar prowlers and rapes in the area went down. The police believed they apprehended the right man, and locals finally began to feel safe. Well, all of a sudden, when the tragedy fell upon Janet Chrisman, with a similar connection to Mary Lou Jenkins, it caused many people to doubt the police arrested the right man. Yeah, I could see that. I could see the doubt. As the police continued on with their investigation into Janet Christman's murder, one prime suspect named Robert Mueller came up. Isn't that... That's one of the people that she would babysit for. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The circumstantial evidence against him began piling up. Mueller was 27 years old and friends with Ed Romack since high school. Hmm. After graduation, Mueller served in World War II as an Army Air Corps captain and had a distinguishable record. He later returned to Columbia, Missouri, running his father's restaurant, Mueller's Virginia Cafe, and working as a tailor. Many people remember him for dressing well and always carrying around a mechanical pencil Hmm. in his front shirt or jacket pocket. Suspish. When Mueller and Ed Romack reacquainted, they shared mutual friends and would eventually... Oh my god. Frequently. When Mueller and Ed Romack... When Mueller and Ed Romack reacquainted, they shared mutual friends and would frequently spend time together. According to Ed, he had a lustful eye for virgin women and smoke... Smoke? Oh my good lord. Help me! (laughs) Oh my good lord. 
I don't even know why I say that. Oh my good lord. Oh my good lord. And you like raise your hands up. Oh my good lord. <laughs> Praise Jesus. And I'm not even Christian. <laughs> and spoke about having a desire to defile someone young. I'm just going to re-say that sentence. 13. According to Ed, he had a lustful eye for virgin women and spoke about having a desire to defile someone young. Like 13 years old, young. Yeah. He knew Janet since she babysat for him on numerous occasions, and Ed recalled him making lecherous comments about her well-developed hips and breasts. What the heck? You nasty. Nasty. Additionally, Mueller's lewd behavior stemmed over to Ed's wife. Anne, who felt uncomfortable around him because of his uninvited sexual advancements. So this guy was a creep. Yeah, this guy would have got punched in the face if it was me. Yeah, same. One day before Janet's murder, Mueller had been visiting the home helping Anne hemp a dress and reportedly tried groping her breasts. And that, my friend, is right when I would punch him in the mouth. Oh, absolutely. No, I would I'm not one him. for I'm not one for violence, but like, if you go and try to touch me... You're definitely going to get hit. I'm sorry. I would punch him in the mouth when he was talking about my hips and breasts, first of all. Well, that was Janet. Oh. He was talking about to Ed. First of all, if you were Ed, why wouldn't you be like, um, okay, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You're disgusting. Right. You're a creep. So, this was, he was trying to touch Anne's breasts. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. In a formal statement given to police, Anne described Mueller as a man who, quote, doesn't use words, he uses his hand hands not just one hand not just one (laughs) two sorry that's not funny that's disgusting but also the morning of janet's death robert contacted janet to ask if she would babysit his children for the night but she declined because she already had pre-arrangements to look after romac's son so she he knew that she was going to be there Mm -hmm. mueller attended the gathering with the romax and their mutual friends but hours into the party he excused himself claiming he had to meet a doctor who was supposed to tend to his son. Who meets a doctor late at night? Hmm. Yeah, that's sus- suspicious. I was going to say suspicious, <laughs> but you yelled at me. No, you can say it. I'm just, I'm just fucking around. I know. Mueller just disapp- oglaglawing around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mueller disappeared for two hours before returning to the party. Two hours? That's long enough to kill somebody, I think. Mm-hmm. The police questioned Mueller's doctor and discovered... He never went to the Mueller residence that evening. Obviously. Mm, Obvi. To implicate Robert even more, Ed Romack got a phone call from Mueller at his father's home on the morning after the murder. Supposedly, he had asked if he needed any assistance with cleaning up the blood throughout the house. But he shouldn't have known about the tragedy that took place because Mm. the crime hadn't been printed in the local newspaper yet. Oh, you just forked yourself. You just oglogglod yourself. Oglogglod yourself there, bud. Ed claimed Mueller would later speak to him regarding the crime and began expounding on how he believed the crime unfolded, claiming that breaking a window to climb into the home would be too loud and noticeable. Hmm. Instead, it would be much easier to knock on the door and say, Ed sent me here to get poker chips. Is that what he did? Probably remember. The door mm-hmm. wasn't locked. The shotgun was untouched. Mm-hmm. Sus. AF. Suspish. The circumstantial evidence against Mueller was overwhelming. In May 1950, law enforcement compiled all the evidence against him and went to his residence to speak with him. 
Rather than following the basic guidelines of an arrest warrant and interview procedures, the officers didn't take him into custody. They transported him to a farmhouse outside of city limits and interrogated him throughout the night. Mueller was taken to the state capital, Jefferson City, where he was given a polygraph test and passed. Passed? How the hell? Hail. Hail? How That's the what hail? you say. When the unfortunate results of the lie detector test, with the unfortunate results of the lie detector test, the detectives had to let him go free. Just because he passed the polygraph test does not mean he. Dude, those are so inaccurate. Man, anyone can be like. (sighs) Literally, if you're like a psycho and you can just stay calm in those situations and you can fucking lie through a polygraph test because really, doesn't it just measure like your heart rate and shit? Mm -hmm. So like, if you were a psychopath, or you could absolutely be like, I did not kill, and not your heart wouldn't even skip a beat. Right. So all of the evidence pointed in. Um, his, gosh dang it, what's his name? Mueller. All the evidence pointed in Mueller's direction, and the court judge, W.M. Dinwiddle. (laughs) (laughs) Dinwiddle. I totally forgot that was his name. (laughs) It's not funny. Names are not funny, but Dinwiddle is funny. Dude, my name is funny. So, come on. My name's not that funny. It's funny to me. (sighs) Come on. That's okay. (laughs) Dinwiddle (laughs) felt compelled to arrange a grand jury to investigate Mueller's case further. Robert Mueller was never charged because of incompetence police conducted during their investigation into him. So, like, their incompetence Mm -hmm. investigating him. So, he was never charged. Nope. These factors led Mueller to not be apprehended, and he later sued the police department, but he lost the lawsuit. Afterward, he relocated with his family to Tuscan, Arizona, and in that t- says Tucson. It's Tucson, Arizona. I not knew that Tuscan. when I read it. When I read it, when I was doing my research, I said Tucson. It's Tucson, and I knew that. Tuscan, Arizona. Oh, what a noob! <laughs> I thought you were gonna say what a boob. <laughs> you know, like um, Drake and Josh. Yeah, ya boob. <laughs> <laughs> what a boob. Oh, gosh. Well, anyways, Tucson. I knew it was Tucson. That makes me mad. (laughs) And in 2006, he passed away at 83 years old. And the Romax moved to Idaho Falls, Idaho. 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 In the 1980s and passed away. Ed eventually remarried, and in 2016, he passed away at 93 years old. Dang. As for his son, Gregory, he grew up successful and settled down in Alaska. Which, I've always wanted to go there. Me too. The Chrisman family remained in Columbia and continued running their business until Janet's father, Charles Chrisman, passed away on September 24th, 1974, at 60 years old. After his death, his wife, Lula Chrisman, moved to Kansas City, where she would remain until her passing in 2009. Her oldest daughter, Retta, would settle down with a wonderful man and start a family of her own, while the youngest daughter, Cheryl, who was only a baby at the time of Janet's murder, moved to Florida. It's now been 72 years, and the once loving, hardworking, and independent 13-year-old who was saving up for a burgundy dress for Easter would have been 84 years old on March 21, 2020. While the Romax and the Chrisman family believed Robert Mueller is responsible for Janet's murder, they were painfully stricken with the unsatisfaction for receiving legal justice and closure, and the case officially remains unsolved. That sucks. Yep. So it was never solved. That is 
kind of sad. I hate unsolved cases. Me too. I bet he did it, though. Oh, for sure. For he sure. carried a mechanical pencil in his front pocket. Yeah. And, and when he was like, breaking the window would be too obvious. Why wouldn't I just go knock on the door and say, hey, Ed told me to get poker chips. Or, do you need help cleaning up the blood? How did you know there was blood here? Right. Hmm? How did you know there was blood all over the place? Also hmm? leaving the party for two hours. And then randomly coming back. Also a doctor. Saying that he had never seen you? Yeah. Never seen your son. Mm-hmm. Also, he knew she was going to be there that night. Yeah. Because he called her to babysit his own kids. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nah, can't do that. Maybe. He called her to babysit his kids because he wanted to do that anyway. Maybe it was premeditated. That's a good point because he was making those comments about her. Mm-hmm. Nasty. And then he just figured out another way to get it done anyway. Yep. That's a good point. But we may never know. No, we won't ever know. Because everybody died. That's all. That that was an interesting one. Yeah. It was cool that it was based on an urban legend. Or legend. Whatever. Well, the legend was based on it. Yeah. That's what I meant. Right. And there's a movie. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, One second. Let me go to my links. Oh, I also have the news article in the notes if you want to read Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it is based on the movie When a Stranger Calls. When a Stranger Calls. So, have you ever seen it? Nope. Or, sorry, the movie is based off of that mm-hmm. murder. Not the murder is based off the movie. Called When a Stranger Calls. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, if you guys want to check out that movie, it's based on Janet Christman's murder. R.I.P. Rip. So, anyways, guys, that's it. That's all I have for you today. All it's right. definitely a shorter version than last week. Yeah, that was a long one last week. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Well, I know I did. As much as you can well, enjoy yeah. a case like that. Enjoy learning about it. Yeah, that's yes. what I meant. I did. All right, guys, well, we're out of here. We'll see you in the next one. See ya. Bye. Bye.